Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn lead to the renaming of periods into ages. You've personally just experienced the information age and what a ride it has been. Now consider that you might now be living on the cusp, the transition to a new age, the age of infinite. An infinite age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life as together, we create a new definition of the future. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation. We were named by NASA, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, the moon hut, through the accelerated development of an earth and space space ecosystem then to use the endeavors, the paradigm shifting thinking and the innovations and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring spreadsheeting our way to the age of infinite. And with us is Megan Crawford. How are you, Megan? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me, David. Love having you here. So let me a short brief intro to Megan. She's the managing partner of the, a managing partner of the VC fund, the Space Fund. So kind of apropos being in the space industry, which means she also is an investor. She's also done advising. She runs her own podcast called Mission Eve Podcast. Let's get right onto the program. Uh, Megan, do you have an outline for us? I do. You do. I'm so excited. What, what's not? Give me the outline. Start with number one. All right. We've got seven points here. Number one is, um, and I have to give credit where credit is due. It's a saying that's uh, my co-founder at Space Fund and long-term long-term mentor, uh, Rick Tomlinson, always uh, always says, which is nobody stays until somebody pays. Nobody pays. Okay. Next. Uh, Number two is the case for Space Force as an economic driver. Driver next. Number three, launch is a solved problem. Ipso facto, the time to invest in launch has passed. Ipso facto. <laughs> the time, That's one of my favorites. <laughs> the time uh, to invest to in invest, launch has passed. Invest in launch has passed. Next. Number four, what's being launched? The constellation craze. Constellation craze, next. And then uh, five, six, and seven are along the same theme here. Five is where is the economic opportunity in the near term? So I'm calling that three to five years. Hold on, economic activity. Or opportunity. Uh, economic, oh, opportunity. In the near term? Near term, three to yep. five years. And then we'll do medium term, five to seven. And yep. long term, seven plus. Seven plus, okay. So let's start with your number one. Help me understand this. Nobody stays until somebody pays. Yep. So in the theme of today's podcast of spreadsheeting, right? Um, <laughs> I tend to live and die by the numbers. And so, so let's start with a few numbers here. Um, the United States spent $28 billion to land men on the moon between 1960 and 1973, which adjusted for inflation is over $280 billion today. 
Okay. The NASA budget was 4% of the national budget in the late 60s. Today, it's less than one half of 1%. Less than one half of one. Yep. Okay. And, and then this is not necessarily a numerical point, but an important geopolitical point. Um, the new Cold War with China is not a race to the moon, but a race for the high ground from a military perspective. Mm -hmm. And so let me kind of weave these three points together for you here. Um, during the Apollo program, which um, I was uh, unfortunately not alive yet for, but um, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, you know, created a, a, a fervor, just not in the United States, but around the world. It, everybody believed this was the beginning. This was the beginning of humanity's breakout into space. We were finally going to settle the high frontier. And all we ended up with instead was flags and footprints, right? Why is that? Because we did not go to the moon in an economically sustainable way. We went to the moon as a geopolitical stunt, as part of our Cold War with China, as a point of national. You mean, you mean pride. with Russia? You mean with Russia? With, with Russia. I'm sorry, with Russia. I'm, I'm moving ahead to the next point. Yeah, already. that's Thank okay. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the USSR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, um, and so, you know, it was. It, that's why we ended up with only what, you know, how we refer to it as flags and footprints, right? There's, there's no long-term presence on the moon. It was not the beginning of, um, of this, you know, human um, outreach into space because it was done for political reasons, not for economic reasons. There is, there is no way to sustain a NASA budget at 4% of the national budget. There's no way to spend $280 billion to send you know, men back to the moon as, as a political stunt, especially in a post-COVID world. Um, and so, you know, so really the question is, how do we get to that sustainable off-world economy um, that, um, that will allow us to stay and stay sustainably? And that only comes if there's real, valid, economic reasons to go. And there's private capital, preferably a combination of public and private capital um, is, gonna, is what it's going to take to open the frontier. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's what we're, people have been talking about. So how do we get to the sustainable so that's a great question. And, and that's by, you know, basically by investing in business models that make sense, that provide um, not just reasonable, but higher than average uh, risk adjusted, as we say, returns. Because space is new, because it's not well understood by the investment community, the returns have to be outsized enough to outweigh that risk. Okay. So you need to get a high return for the patient capital or for the risk that's involved where you could lose everything. Right. And that's the patient capital. I'm glad you brought that up because that's another important factor in this is that there is a misconception um, around space investing that's twofold. One, it's too rich for my blood, right? It's too, it requires too much capital. 
And number two, that um, that capital has to be tied up for too long. A typical investment time frame, whether you're talking about a venture capitalist, whether you're talking about um, you know somebody nearing retirement, um, you know you've got to look at an investment windows usually in the seven to ten year time frame. Whereas SpaceX and Blue Origin are both twenty years old, and neither of them are going public anytime soon, so there's no investor exits there. Um, so you have to look at that exit timeline um, as a really important factor in investing in these private companies. And um, Space Fund has done some research around this, and we found that the average age at exit is seven years, which does fit within that typical investment timeline. Uh, but until kind of this year where you saw a flurry of space-related SPACs over the last few months, these space exits were not very big or grand or had much fanfare. And so um, it, it was harder for people to believe you could get an exit within that time frame. Well, I, 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 would, I would complicate that a little bit. It's not that the exit is because the companies are profitable. Many of the, it's because the way in which individuals are valuing the companies today at at, a, at an X, in many cases, that's far beyond what people would seem rational, is turning out to be a windfall for those investors. But it's not because that they're highly profitable businesses. In the case of the SPACs, in most of the cases of the SPACs, that is true. Um, we have seen a couple of companies with some revenue, which was really exciting to me. <laughs> Yay, companies with revenue going public, love it. Um, i.e. Rocket Labs, Fire. Um, yeah. but, um, but a lot of the exits, the, the ones that didn't have much fanfare, a lot of these acquisition and acquisitions that have been happening quietly in the industry over time, a lot of those exits were um, based on you know, a multiple of revenue, on, on real revenue. Uh, that's why the companies were acquired. Um, and so you know, that's kind of the part of the exit ecosystem that has not been um, well published, let's say, to the public, but is a very robust and real and growing um, part of the, the entire new space ecosystem. So if I was to remove the, and it's not that it has to be removed, but just for my own sake of understanding, if we were to remove all government funded spending to all of these companies where their contracts are purely uh, in the United States, DOD, Department of Defense, uh, the NASA, or the intelligence community, or we go over to Europe and it's not the European Space Agency and we go over to, uh, we could travel the world. If we were to remove all of that, would these companies have still been profitable? That's a great question. So governments currently account for a full 25% of the global space economy. So regardless of whether or not you as a company have received R&D funding from a, government, uh, from a government body, you can't ignore the government as a customer when they comprise 25% of the sector that you're working in. So the governments are an important part of the sector, whether it's the R&D funding or, or as a customer. And so, um, so would the industry fall down without 25% of the, the economic driver of the industry? It might well, honestly. Um, and, and so, you know, that's one of the things, one of the reasons I mentioned earlier, 
this industry needs a combination of both private and public capital to to survive and be as robust as we want it to be. Well, well that's the reason. The reason I'm asking is I get questions that says, "Well, are people commenting? Well, if Elon Musk didn't make the money off of the U.S. government, would they?" be alive today, would that have happened? And their first contract for it was a $200 million came out of, it was a government contract that enabled them to take the next big jump in their, in their positioning. And I do understand what you just mentioned, Pfizer, which did not get any money for the development of the COVID vaccine, was not part of Project Warp Drive individuals saying, well, they were part of Warp Warp Drive. And I said, no, 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 no. The fact that they had a customer who was willing to buy their product enabled them and made their investment portfolio worthwhile to put money into it. But they still were investing on their own to secure a contract that is commercially viable. Right. And so similar type of scenario. I just wanted to know if these companies, especially the smaller end companies, would, would a large portion of them not even be around if not for these entities i think that there's some truth in that i think that the best of the best companies would be able to survive on private capital alone um, especially through the r d stage which can be expensive but having that early government funding to cover r d costs really positions these companies to take private capital um, once they have let's say a working prototype um, which means the company can raise at a higher valuation which means the founders don't get diluted nearly as much, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is in, a, in a sense, good for everybody in the community. It, it re- reduces that early risk, that early technical risk for the investor um, and increases the value of the company before they ever have to fundraise. So, uh, you know, my, in my ideal world, we have a, a well-functioning ecosystem that includes both the private and public capital at the right time to make the most sense for the company life cycle. And so that's that early R&D funding from the government to cover technical risk. Then private capital comes in to help the company scale, build business team around the tech, all of that. And then um, at the next stage, the government comes in as a customer once the company has scaled to the point where it can fulfill uh, larger government contracts. And so, so we, we have kind of, you, you break it up into three phases. There's the initial, yeah. which is government. You have the, the middle phase, and then the government is the customer. As one of several customers, hopefully, right? You don't ever want just one customer. I tell people all the time, one customer does not a business make, <laughs> yeah. right? And so um, having the government or having multiple parts of the government as customers can be can be great as part of a, you know, combination of, of commercial and government portfolio of customers, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So going back to sustainability, how do you get that sustainability out of, out of what you're seeing here, what we just so, described? So it's all about, um, you know, the kind of the first wave of companies making a good um, a good return, then investors will take some portion of that return and reinvest it into the same economy that now they're learning more about and have more confidence in. And so you get a kind of a vir- virtuous cycle, right? Um, 
And so that's how you get to economic sustainability is by continuing to grow, continuing to show good returns for investors, continuing to reduce timelines to return, um, increase ROI, return on investment, um, and continue to build the, the hype about the industry as well. Some of this um, SPAC craziness earlier this year has done, has done a good job of that. Um, but the industry as a whole could be much better about, you know, we're really good about, yay, rockets, <laughs> but we're not very good about, hey, guess what? Look at this company who just exited in six years at, you know, 10x what the initial investors put in. And yay, let's talk about that for a minute. You, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and so um, we could get a little bit better about overall as an industry talking about the the outsized returns that this industry is capable of providing. Now, you might plan on covering this later, but one of the questions that immediately is coming to mind is what if, or if there is a sort of collapse in an industry, what happens to the whole ecosystem when this, these rocket companies, for example, become the main focus. And I'll give you my, my take, you can fix, adjust it. Over 150 space launch companies out there today, maybe 20% of them are actually doing something that's up in space, uh, if that is even the number. If you start to see a cascading number of these failing simultaneously, what does that do? So that's, uh, that's number three. We'll talk okay. about that in number three, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, so I, I will share, so you do have a context, and, and this is not because of who you're associated with, but both Deep Space Industries and um, Planet Resources, however they turned at the end and bought out uh, the, the Luxembourg, put in a lot of money, different groups put money in, and then two companies just disappeared off the map. And while I was in Luxembourg, I spoke at the conference and I was lured to the conference because 500 people had attended the year before. Uh, Luxembourg had invested. The next year I show up and there's, there's thousands of people who attend this conference. So there's a space component to it, but only 75 people were in the audience. And it was when I asked individuals, it was because they felt that they just got taken advantage of as a country. And there was a large uh, negative feeling towards the industry. So we can address that later, but that's one of the reasons when I hear we have good returns, we have seven years, but there's, there are those that flame out in a big way. Absolutely. And that's always a risk of investing, right? It's a risk of 100% loss in any investment you make. That's the risk component, you know? Um, but as with any nascent um, ecosystem or, or sector, you're going to have a lot of failures at the beginning. And then the percentage, although the number of failures will continue to increase as the number of businesses increases, hopefully that percentage of failure starts to decrease. But you will always have, um, you know, the risk of complete loss in any investment that you make. Are we seeing, are, are we on the, in your opinion, are we on the upswing of the actually seeing more of these as a higher percentage or are we far away from seeing what you're talking about a percentage of failures decreasing as an overall percentage of the ecosystem 
Um, I believe that we're definitely headed that direction. And one of the things that I'm most excited to see is what I call round two entrepreneurs. Um, and the industry is at an age now where we've got some really, really solid round two entrepreneurs. And these are people who have built a business that has failed, built a business that has had a medium amount of success or built a business that's been successful, been through the entire life cycle, come out the other side, learned a lot of valuable lessons and are now going at it for round two, starting a new business based on those lessons learned. Those are some of the most valuable entrepreneurs you can have in an ecosystem. And we're, we're seeing a lot of those right now. So I think that's a really good indication that what we're are kind some of, of the names rounding that, the hump. What's, what are some of the names that pop out? Pop off, pop out. Um, so, um, you know, one that I, I'll talk about, uh, I always like to compliment him as um, CEO of one of Space Fund's portfolio companies, OrbitFab. He was the CEO of Deep Space Industries, company you just mentioned, um, and uh, he was a he had been a technical founder. Um, took some time off, went and got an MBA, and came back into the industry to start Orbit Fab, which is um, doing refueling depots, gas stations in space. And so, um, you know, and and DSI did. Oh, have, that, that's um, Daniel Faber. Daniel Faber. Yep, Daniel Faber. Sorry, I thought I had said his name. Thank you. <laughs> Dan Favorite. No worries. Um, Daniel, has yeah. a place, Daniel has a place in my heart because as I entered the space industry and he was at Deep Space and he was right behind our offices at NASA Ames and I yep. was introduced to him and I told him what we were working on and I call him the human calculator because he said, no, no, wait, wait, give me a second. And you could see his brain moving. I mean, it was yeah. amazing. And he says, no, no, no. What we could do is we could grab this and do this and do this and throw the asteroid at the moon. And I'm thinking, wow. And so he made me rethink many constructs past that because of the way he addressed his thinking. Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, but again, having this kind of first round of entrepreneurial experience and then being able to apply all of those lessons learned um, you know, and in full disclosure, I was chief operating officer at Deep Space Industries while well, he was chief executive officer. So I worked very closely with him at that time. Um, and just watching his evolution as he's become this absolutely phenomenal entrepreneur and, and just great leader at Orbit Fab, um, you know, is, is, has been excellent to watch. And I've seen my business partner, Rick Tumlinson go through this as well. He's been through, he's, he's been a little too early with a lot of the businesses he started over the years because he's a visionary and he can see what's coming down the pike. But if your customers aren't ready to buy your product till three years from now, it doesn't really, <laughs> or five years from now, help. right? You could right, be a visionary right. and congratulations, you're written as the visionary. But, uh, but, you know, learning those lessons by having been through those experiences, um, you know, you have the scars to prove it. And as long as you're, you know, go stick your head in a hole and say, woe is me, the industry wasn't ready for me yet. You say, no, what's the industry ready for now? Let's go do that thing, you know? Um, and that's, that's an attitude that we absolutely love to see. So how do we get to, to a point where besides governments or where are you seeing Going back to your nobody stays until somebody pays. So how do we get to? Yeah, how do we? How do, yeah, how do we get to that? 
So that's a, that's a great question. It starts, you know, the industry is still at a very early stage. And what the industry needs now is seed capital and growth capital. And that need can largely be met by the venture capital community, the angel community. Um, but as these companies get into later growth stage rounds, we're going to need different financial mechanisms, just like you find in other industries. Everything from, you know, from debt, um, you know, kind of longer term, low interest financing for infrastructure projects. Um, you know, we're going to need um, futures and options markets. We're going to need all of the other parts of a, of a robust and working economy. And there are a lot of brilliant people working right now to help solve those kind of bigger gaps that are coming in the future. But, but right now, um, you know, uh, venture capital, angel capital is really instrumental to getting this industry up and moving in, in a sustainable way that's focused on, as I mentioned earlier, those, those shorter term, good return on investment numbers that will continue to keep capital flowing in. Each interview is very different. Sometimes I don't have a lot of questions. Sometimes I do. Uh, for some reason today I do. Maybe <laughs> it's, uh, if we're looking at, I see your, the statement, no, uh, nobody stays until somebody pays. In your mind, is that customer or VC at this moment or, or so the capital? V, the VC capital is needed to get to the customer capital. Um, and then, you know, so it, it's got to it's got to be all of the above. Right. You have to have an early funding ecosystem that gets the companies up and running into the point where they can service customers. You have to have customers who um, who are doing well enough themselves to buy <laughs> the products and services, right? Yeah. So then that means they have to have customers. They have to have had some early financing to get them to the point where they are. Um, and then, um, like I said, you need these kind of uh, later stage growth mechanisms. Um, and, then, um, and then you need a robust um, you know, public market that's ready to receive these companies as they um, as they get to that stage. So you have exits for the early investors. Okay. So anything else you want to add to nobody stays until somebody pays? Um, I think we're good there. Okay. So let's hit your second one, the case for Space Force as an economic driver. And I will stop you for one moment before you start on it. For those who are listening in, there is an absolutely fantastic podcast by Peter Gerritsen, who defined his version of the Space Force. So if you would like to dig deeper after this, you will have an option to go to that one. Okay, so let's go on to two. Okay, great. And so this one I just wanted to keep in as a bit of, put in here as a bit of background um, uh, to kind of address something that, that investors oftentimes see as a big risk with investing in space. And to also kind of um, build off of this comment I made in number one about uh, the new Cold War with China is not a race to the moon, but a race for the high ground from a military perspective. Um, and, and so a lot of people, I think, um, look at Space Force, maybe rightly so, as, as uh, you know, a military unit, which it is. Um, but I think that it's really important uh, part of the economic discussion as well. And so 
investors are oftentimes concerned about, let's call for shorthand, space pirates, right? Now, this isn't necessarily going to be guys on ships with funny hats, right? But this could be, um, you know, robotic spacecraft that any spacecraft, for instance, that has the capability to do satellite servicing also has the capability to do satellite destruction, <laughs> right? Uh, just by the nature of, of what the spacecraft can do. Um, how do you protect from bad actors in space? Um, and that is a risk that one has to consider when investing in, in, in the space industry. And so one of the things to me that's, um, that's really talked about and is really important from this economic perspective is to think of Space Force as, um, you know, if Space Force were to exist to quote unquote, protect all American assets in space, both public and private. Okay, yeah. which is the terminology that I've heard tossed around. Okay, from, from these folks, right? Now, if that is in fact the case, so one of the reasons we have such a robust global economy right now is because we have safe shipping lanes. We have safe shipping lanes thanks to the great navies of the world, not the least of which is the US Navy, right? Without those great navies, we would not have a global economic system where we could, we could um, reliably ship goods all around the world. So having something like Space Force exist that provides some protection for American assets, both public and private, provides that equivalent of the US Navy protecting the global shipping lanes. So if you were a European and you just heard that, or you're an African, or you're Southeast Asia, when you, uh, and I could, there's a bunch of others, but we'll stop at that. Is this American imperialism again? American expansionism again? Is it, is it about America? No, it is hopefully the first step in creating a global group of allied navies or space forces that work together to pr protect the global shipping lanes. And there's, um, there's an analogy that's frequently made um, when you're talking about, say, the, um, the policy and regulatory environment of asteroid mining. And the comparison is always to fishing in international waters, right? Nobody owns that ocean. And when I move my ship out into international waters, I'm not claiming that I own the ocean. When I drop my net in the waters, I'm not claiming that I have any ownership to any of that. But once I pull that net up out of the water and dump the fish on, onto my boat, now I own those fish, right? And so um, if, the, if um, the universe is seen as international waters, um, your, your ship, your spaceship is flagged to your home country. And so, yes, if there's an emergency at sea, you hope the U.S. Navy is somewhere nearby. But if the British Navy is nearby or, you know, the, the Singaporean Navy is nearby, 
they're going to come help our allies at sea and they're going to come defend them from the pirates that are trying to steal the fish right and so so that's the the eventual you know international cooperation that i would love to see in a case where the allies are coming together to protect assets and to protect the rights of individuals to utilize the assets of space um, based on on international agreements it's an interesting construct because if two two pieces of it one <clears throat> one is that we have these things called oceans which are very distinct we have borders around each continent each country so that makes it very clear what on the surface is that boundary if we were to then realize that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submarines underneath they're also floating in this space but there are still some boundaries that can be defined when you look up how do you define that so you know and that that's a good question um so right now based on you know kind of some older agreements the un during the initial space age um there's you know the there's agreements that say basically you know space belongs to everybody when when the united states um planted our flag in the moon on the moon we weren't claiming the moon as u.s territory right and so that's um you know it, it is kind of internationally owned but then you look back at um several years back when we were at deep space industries we we helped on some legislation that was passed here in the united states and there was similar legislation in luxembourg and i think the uae as well um that kind of set up this international water scenario that while you can maybe while you individual or country can land on the moon or land on an asteroid you can't claim the moon or the asteroid as your own whatever whatever resources you extract you can you can claim as your own um and so you know thereby kind of reducing some of the geopolitical and legal risk around things like in space mining um uh, but you have to have those kind of international agreements in place and um you know bilateral multilateral agreements that that kind of protect the the rights of commerce does it i i'm tell me if i'm wrong here in the construct of uh the the agreements they've not been for private companies as more as much as they've been for countries uh so the the us one was very much um you know directed towards us companies and individuals having these rights not the us government Okay. I mean, yes, the US government by de facto, but the purpose of of the legislation was to give individuals and corporations as individuals um the right to do that. So the did anybody else sign up to this? So like <clears throat> I said there there was some legislation in the US, some legislation in Luxembourg and some legislation in the UAE. To my knowledge, there has not been any bilateral or multilateral agreements between the countries yet it was all just legislation passed within their borders so in essence if i go to the moon and i set up my place and somebody else wants to come and take my place <clears throat> they're not supposed to but they could and so they all we do is create war on earth 
Well, I mean, in theory, um, if it's two corporations, I don't know, it rises to the level of a of a real war, but maybe a, you know, stock buyout battle on the New York Stock Exchange or something, you know, you know what I mean? But, uh, but uh, you know, there are kind of respected zones of non-interference um, in space. But again, who's there to enforce those if there's no space police, right? Um, and so, um, you know, the idea is if you set up somewhere on the moon, you have a, a zone, whatever you want to call it, however many meters out, um, where it's not safe for us to both be operating spacecraft near each other. Um, and, and those are kind of international norms that are going to have to be worked out over time. Do, do you actually, your opinion, <clears throat> excuse me, I got something in my throat. Do you actually believe in the, in the light of what's going on, Russian, China, uh, Europe, excuse me, I get to take a drink. <clears throat> the European Space Agency just made an announcement or Europe has been looking at the fact that most of the launches are happening. A large percentage of them are happening through SpaceX. So they want to ramp up their own activities. Do you believe we're closer to coming to these compromises and understanding? Or do you believe this will be pushed on and not achieve that or anywhere in between? I think that both Russia and China are going to do whatever Russia and China want to do. Um, I think that the rest of the world will, you know, the legal and political always lags behind commerce. That's just the nature of, of our economic, you know, our, our legal and political systems is that they don't write laws until there's a problem to write a law about, <laughs> right? So <laughs> the problem has to happen first, usually. Um, and so I think that you will start to see these things develop amongst the kind of the rest of the world um, over the coming years. Uh, and I think that'll happen quite amicably. Um, but then you've always got China and Russia will do what China and Russia will do. Well, you know? we're, we're also seeing the UAE has its own capabilities. We're seeing India with their capabilities. And personally, I'm a person of the world, not, not to say complete globalist, but I've lived in Europe and I've lived in, in Asia past 10 years in, in Hong Kong. I see a much different perspective as to what the future could be. And I'm given the pen and I'm not as, as optimistic being pragmatic in the form of being optimistic. I'm not as optimistic that in the short term or reasonably reasonable time, that the individuals, companies, uh, the, the political wherewithal will be to create a multilateral, multi-everything agreement that people are going to stick to because they'll see so many opportunities and such an expense that they've outlaid to get there. I, I agree that it, it, there's not going to be, you know, some multilateral, everybody agrees to, this is now the international rule of law and space thing. I think that's probably gonna take decades to develop over time through, like I said, problems developing, solutions being figured out for those problems, norms developing over time. This is why everybody files their, their corporate paperwork in Delaware. It's not because Delaware is better than any other state or cheaper than any other state to file in. It's because they have, they have the most case law history 
So you can, if there's ever a dispute, you can go and you're, you're litigating it in Delaware, you can go back and there's hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of case law examples of the same problems being solved in the Delaware courts before. And so you have to kind of build up that body of case law. You have to build up that body of examples and, and, and put agreements together as they're needed. And then it, it piecemeals together into a bigger, you know, patchwork quilt over time. This is not something that's going to have a single immediate solution. Uh, interestingly brought up the case law side and the way you've approached it. Working in Luxembourg, one of the individuals I dealt with was constantly against America and against the British. And this individual would say, you all work on case law. We in her country work on an existing set of laws that everything is compared to. So there is the school of thought that you come up with your policy and it doesn't matter what case law is. It's always brought back to the origination of what the law is. The American system and many other systems are based upon this case law history and it is for good and for bad. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to, to every situation, but, but the, the beauty of case law in my mind is that it's based on real examples. Like you and I could sit here and, you know, spend six months hashing out what all the laws of the universe should be and makes perfect sense. And everybody agrees. Yep. This is it. This is the way it should be. But, you know, it, no good plan survives contact with reality, right? Like you have to, the, real things have to happen and you have to be able to go back and edit and inform and, and modify um, as real world examples come up. Yeah, um, if you went through my head, you'd see, you'd see things flying. And <laughs> there's, there's a scenario in the United States, I won't get into the specifics of it because it's too, uh, it's too ignitable as a topic, but there's a, a certain law that's been a challenge of a certain type of uh, public servant. And the law is that they cannot be brought in front of a, uh, as a case, unless there's a case that has existed before it. So therefore, there's never been a case so no one can ever bring a case against it. And they just had something passed in the United States. I don't know if I said that well, but they just had something where the Supreme Court, I believe, said, no, you cannot do that anymore. You cannot play that game. But for decades, the law was, you can only bring a case against an individual if in fact it was, there was a case that existed like it. And people would say, there's nothing like it, so we can't have a case. And for decades, people were able to get away with certain types of activities. So my, my question is, we're coming to the space side. I'm seeing two big things. I'm seeing the big space. There's a lot of space in space. And I'm seeing political wherewithal lacking on this planet. And I'm wondering, when do you see, when we're going to the case for the Space Force, do you think the Space, the space Force is a large enough answer? No, not by itself. And that's the key, right? Is that there have to be international counterparts. Um, we cannot be, you know, the United States cannot be the police of the entire universe for a lot of reasons. <laughs> well, um, let's, let, me, let me add an S to it. Do you believe space forces is the answer? Do you think that will be enough? 
I think that it's a good start, right? I think that it's an important de-risking factor, right? Because looking at things as I do from the investor perspective, you know, um, it's interesting. There's very few industries where geopolitical risk is a risk that you as a company, you as an investment fund have to be aware of and trying to solve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a big part of the geopolitical risk. It's a ge- big part of the legal risk. And it's a big part of the just general physical risk of operating in space. Um, space forces can, can really help that. Do we, the Space Force was just formed in the United States. Do you believe, how long is your timeline for there to be an actual, I don't even know what a Space Force would look like in five years or seven years. I don't know. Is it lasers from Earth? Are are there going to be little people in ships up in the sea, uh, up in the ocean, in the air? Uh, I'll go in the wrong way. Uh, (laughs) What would that look like to you? I think that, um, you know, it's mostly like with most things in space, at least for the next few years, it's going to continue to be robotic. Um, But I do think you're going to see some some interesting innovations that are going to allow a lot more people to be in space. Uh, But I think that's more in the 7, 10, 15 year time frame. Okay. so anything more to add to the case for the Space Force? No, I think we're good there. Okay. Uh, Launch is a solved problem, ipso facto. The time to invest in launch has passed. Yeah. All right. So again, let's start with some numbers. Um, In the 1980s, the shuttle uh, it took, it was $20,000 per kilogram roundabouts to get things into space. A reusable Falcon 9 can do it for about 1,500, 1,500 per kilogram, okay? That is huge. That is, that is just an absolutely mind-boggling decrease um, in, in the cost of launch, okay? Now, there's going to be a time in the not-too-distant future where we're talking about the cost of launch in the hundreds of dollars per kilogram not thousands, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. You mentioned earlier, um, by Space Fund's account, there are currently 162 live rocket or launch companies, excuse me, around the world. Now, I say live because we have over time tracked well over 200 companies, um, a lot of which have gone dark, gone zombie, as we call them, or or failed uh, publicly (laughs) and brutally, (laughs) um, or otherwise disappeared. So current count uh, as of today is 162. And um, to date, uh, launch has received 47% of the venture capital funding that has gone into space, yet accounts for less than 2% of the global space economy. 47% of the venture capital has gone into a subsector that accounts for less than 2% of the space economy. So let's talk about why that is. Okay, so if you're gonna go into that, can you give a definition to me? What to you 
is the space economy? As um, the, I think the easiest way to define it is Bryce's yearly starburst um, uh, graphic that they put out. Uh, Bryce Space and Technology does a great yearly overview of the space economy. Um, and they break everything down by subsectors. And, and, um, and so you can kind of see where, um, that's where I also got this, you know, 25% of the global space economy comes from government budgets that comes out of the Bryce report as well. So to them, uh, the space economy is a space company. Well, to so me, to, well, the reason I say it is the space economy to me is not that. John Deere with their tractors that are being run by satellites, GPS systems on earth that would not exist, the transportation mechanisms that we have that would not exist without the technology on earth that leverages the space industry is also inclusive of that space economy. So in order to, to put bounds, uh, I, I would agree with you in a, in a kind of an esoteric sense, let's say. Okay. But in order to, to do a real economic analysis, we have to have bounds, right? You know, otherwise, you could just keep going forever. And eventually, everything's related to space in some way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but um, so the way that I would draw the line there is to say that the satellite operator who is providing the GPS services is definitely included in the space economy. And John Deere is not. However, when we're talking about the size of the economy, we're talking dollars and cents. So John Deere's dollars that are being paid to the satellite company count as revenue in the satellite company's um, balance sheet. And so that does go into being counted as part of the global space economy. Does that make sense? Yeah, so if you're using GPS and there's no fee to use the GPS to be able to do your work and no one's making money off of it in terms well, of so a specific it's likely, company. It's likely that John Deere has a contract with one of the GPS providers where John Deere pays that and it's a feature that you get when you buy your tractor and John Deere's got a long-term contract with a GPS provider. Okay. Because somebody's okay. paying for it. Somebody's always paying for something someplace. And, and sometimes yeah. it's the, sometimes, well, is, is Bright, when Bryce does those numbers, do they include, for example, the fact that the Russian or the Chinese or uh, all these other countries that have uh, a space industry that's not something like a SpaceX or Blue Origin, are how how are they lot rolled in? You know, I'm not sure, especially with the Chinese. You know, uh, people ask me a lot of times if Space Fund would ever invest in a Chinese company. And aside from uh, ITAR and CFIUS and other issues that we would we would be concerned about having any involvement with with the Chinese company, but um, the I don't necessarily believe that any of the companies in China are not in some way state 
owned and operated, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And so I don't know if you can count any of them as companies. So I don't know. That would be a good question for Bryce. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and if you think of the United States, so we take out any activity that involves the U.S. government that owns and operates something, then it changes those numbers also. So, right, but but a lot of what's going on in space right now, especially, is U.S. government buying products and services from public companies, and again, that counts as revenue. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that does go into the calculations. So if the so uh, is there are there balance numbers, not income statements, that show what the International Space Station makes for its? I'm sure that that information is public. I've never tried to dig it up, but okay. I'm just trying to, to, in my mind, the space industry, at least for on the pro, uh, for the Project Moon Hut side, is to demonstrate that into, to individuals that you don't have to be specifically in the space industry to be in the space industry. If you're utilizing space to be able to perform your duties, if you have uh, some type of a connection that requires your supply chain to work or requires your products to be manufactured in a certain way, or you feed and you help space companies, you are part of the ecosystem. So I, the space sure. economy and the space ecosystem to me sometimes are, inter, are not interchangeable and sometimes they are. So I, that's why I was pushing on the question. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not an easy thing because if we want People like me, because I'm not a space enthusiast. I happen to be in the space industry, but I'm not a space enthusiast. I don't look to the stars. If you want someone like me to be involved and I'm an opportunistic person, well, then I need to show how the opportunities in the space industry, that I could be a part of that space industry, but I don't have to have a rocket to be engaged in it. No, you don't. Absolutely, you don't. And um, when we get down a little bit further in the outline here, I'm going to talk about some of the, like, entrepreneurial opportunities that are that are outside of this this launch discussion okay so i stopped you after you were gonna so you gave me the less than two percent of the space economy 47 percent of vc funding yes yes and so um yeah that that's that's a serious imbalance right two percent of the sector is receiving nearly 50 percent of the funding yeah um and so why is that um, I think there's a couple of reasons there. I think one, launch is easily understood by an investment community that maybe doesn't understand space in general or the market or, or where it's heading. You know, it's a, it's a rocket, right? You light one mm-hmm. end, it goes to space. Yeehaw, right? Okay. Big yeah, big toys. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, and so um, I think that there's a lot of in- investor interest right now because you can't get into SpaceX. Uh, SpaceX doesn't want any new investors on their cap table. And so people are looking for other, um, you know, opportunities to invest in launch. Um, and I think it's just, you know, interesting and exciting and, and a, an industry that's big and shiny and bright and that want, people want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's driven the valuations in that industry up to, to levels that I think are, are a little bit ridiculous right now. Um, but, you know, we did some research uh, almost two years ago now um, around around this uh, specifically the supply and demand in the in the launch industry and the results of that were that um, even though we expect 
the number of things to be launched to increase rapidly over time. And we'll talk about that one a little bit in the next bullet point. But um, even, even with some kind of generous predictions, um, we got to the conclusion that no more than 15 to 20 of these companies would survive yeah. of the 162. And so, um, you know, we're concerned that that might, and that if a lot of investors lose a lot of capital as these launch companies start to fail, that that might um, reduce investor confidence in the industry overall. Which was the Luxembourg and, effect that I had spoken about earlier. Yep. And so, um, so you know, we've been kind of shouting from the rooftops, you know, whoa, 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 guys, <laughs> don't invest in launch. Let's talk about, let's talk about what's being launched, right? Let's talk about what's going on that's creating the need for launch. Let's look a little bit deeper into the ecosystem here and see, um, and see why launch is even a thing. And, um, you know, I think we've, we've done a fairly good job of getting that message out. I think that the, a lot of the people with their heads on straight in this industry have been thinking the same. So, along so the what, same do, what line. do you so, tell them? I mean, what's your pitch? You're, you, uh, let's say I've, I've got two and a half million dollars right now and I want to spend it on something. And I like big shiny objects flying up into space. What would you tell me? So I would, I would number one, I'd say, look, you know, We've made two launch investments, one in SpaceX, one in a company that's not a rocket company that we think has paradigm to, to or the ability to disrupt the current rocket paradigm. Um, and if you, if you want any more information about trying to get into those two, neither is easy, but we'll see if we can help you. But really, <laughs> really what, what you need to be thinking about is not what is what's launching but what's being launched and that's my fourth bullet here so you kind of set me up for that one perfectly um you can send me a check actually actually, i'm from in asia we just wired everything in the united states people still send checks so yeah yeah, um what's being launched uh the constellation craze well constellation craze yeah and so um, right now there's around 3000 satellites in orbit. I used to know the exact number, but with how frequently uh, Elon's putting up these batches of Starlink, so I can't keep track anymore, but it's around about 3000 right now. Um, and so the, uh, we expect 50 to 100,000 satellites to launch in the next seven to 10 years. So that's where the demand is coming from on the launch side now even even with demands that high, um, which are, you know, very high, very, very good numbers for the industry. Um, there's still, like I said, only room in the, in the market for 15 to 20 launch companies. But, but what, what is it that's being launched? What's creating that launch demand? What are these 50 to 100,000 satellites? And more than that, <clears throat> I like to always make the comparison that the constellation craze is like the gold rush of the American West. Okay. Um, it wasn't the gold miners who necessarily came out on top economically, right? Most of them made no money. But yeah, a few struck it rich, but those were few and far between. But the people who really made out well during the gold rush were the folks selling the pickaxes and the shovels and the Levi's jeans. And there's a reason that Levi's jeans is still a household name 150 years later, 
right? Because every single gold miner, whether they were going to hit it rich or not, needed a pair of Levi's jeans to get out into the river and pan for gold. And so um, that to me is really the most interesting way to look at the market is the launch availability is creating the movement of 100,000 new purchasers of products and services. An entirely new market is being developed in Leo. And so this, um, you know, so this is where we are really focused from space funds perspective. This is where my kind of personal focus is. This is, this is where I go out, you know, looking for opportunities and looking for companies is in those companies that can provide a product or service that every one of those 100,000 satellites are going to need, right? This is, this is the guy, you know, creating servers during the internet boom. This is the guy, you know, um, laying cable during the internet boom. This, you know what I mean? These are the products and services that are needed for, for that ecosystem to exist. And that's where there is a huge market opportunity and huge value to be created. I, I, I'm where I am. I'm probably 20 miles away from, or 40 kilometers away from a building where three brothers had started a company laying cable and doing uh, setting up networks and they were offered 300 million dollars in the year about 2000 1999 for what they had built and it was amazing three brothers worked two and a half years and were given the opportunity to walk away with 300 million dollars what did they say? Well, it sounds like they said no. <laughs> they said no because they thought they were worth a half a billion to a billion or whatever number. And six months later, they were broke. The family was living, the three families were living in Florida in a two bedroom home with death threats and everything else because the ecosystem completely collapsed on the valuation. And companies swooped in. I, I know the guy who also did the, uh, he was also the bankruptcy judge. And they were getting pennies on the dollar for these ecosystems built by people who really had put the ecosystem in. Is that a possibility here? There's always a possibility for a bubble. Uh, this is one of the reasons, you know, we've talked a lot about believing the launch industry to be overvalued. This is one of my concerns about the current SPAC craze. Um, and, and, you know, one thing that we always try to be very level-headed about in, in our investment decisions is, is maintaining valuations that make sense, um, for, for what companies are really providing. Now, not everybody's going to be that level-headed, especially with something as exciting as space. This is, um, if you've ever made, uh, made cupcakes or, or sugar cookies with your kids or your nieces and nephews, you know that the the most important part of the process is the sprinkles at the end, right? Um, yeah, my mouth is watering, so I don't know why you're doing this to me. Okay, <laughs> cupcakes are so, a weakness for me. 
<laughs> so um, this is what I like to call the magic space sprinkles, right? Like you take a company that's just a normal company, let's say they build hard drives and now you make those hard drives, you know, radiation tolerant. Oh, now they're a space company. They make space hard drives. <laughs> Valuation yep. has just gone a hundred X, right? Because you can put space at the end of the company name. Right. Um, and so, you know, that to me has been, there's been, I, I do have some concerns that a bubble could form around this kind of excitement that drives valuations up to a point that's unsustainable. So I'm hoping that the industry will get a hold of it. I'm hoping that, you know, as some diligent Wall Street analysts are put on the space beat permanently, they start to see what's going on here that, you know what I mean, that the things will normalize, that the, the systems that are in place will, will work to, to kind of normalize valuations. But yes, there is always a possibility of, of this being a, a bit of a bubble right now. I, I personally would love it to succeed. And the questions are not meant to be negative as there are to be to clarify for my own thinking, because I'm uh, we have we have some members on our Project Moon Hut team that are absolute like spot on with everything that they say. They will say that won't succeed. This is not right. This won't work. And almost every time they've been right that I can think of. I can't think of a time that they've not. And so I'm I see so much garbage out there so many promises and so much <clears throat> when confirmed data that is not accurate uh, projections will be there in six years will be there in five years hey how are you going to be there in five years like where where did you come up with this and they're raising money where they're getting investors or they're hiring employees and so i do wonder and i i would we at Project Moon like to be a little bit more pragmatic, not that we won't make our mistakes. So that's why I'm asking these questions. I want to make sure that anybody that I'm learning how to be able to identify, how to look at, how to make sure that I'm doing the right or working with the right people to build our initiative. So if you were to advise me, how do I, how do I stay away from the bad actors? So I, I'm actually involved in the purchasing of the, right applications, the right pieces? Or am I going to fall prey to people who are just putting sprinkles on? How do I know? That's a great question. And one that's that Space Fund set out to, to help with. You know, it's not, a, it's not a problem that any one entity or, or person is going to be able to solve for everybody all the time. Um, but this is why we developed what we call our reality ratings. Um, and back to our theme of spreadsheeting, there are some beautiful spreadsheets. If you're a spreadsheet nerd like me, <laughs> I keep everything in a spreadsheet. Um, so we put together these databases. I won't go into what you've told me, <laughs> spreadsheet. And so, but, uh, I, I, let's, I do know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, spreadsheet nerd, I'm guilty for sure. Um, so we created these databases of um, of every company that we're tracking in every one of our sectors of interest. Now, we don't have them all published yet. They, these do take some time and, and effort to produce, as you might imagine. 
Um, and so, but we're going through sector by sector, cataloging all of the companies. And then based on publicly available information, private information that we have access to, and sometimes just a phone call with the company um, or, or, or you know, an email thread, um, we put together our reality ratings. And if, are you familiar with um, NASA's TRL technology readiness level? No. So it is a scale that NASA uses in order to rate the readiness of certain technologies for, for space. And a zero is just a concept or an idea. And a nine is a piece of technology that's, that's been tested in and works in space. And so it's a scale. And so our real reality ratings are a similar scale, kind of zero to nine. And, um, but we use more than just the technology, you know, readiness level of the company. We also look at business, legal, finance, team, um, market, um, you know, all kind of all the things, all the typical things a, a venture capitalist would look at and, uh, and rate those companies um, and kind of, you know, there's a kind of back end uh, how the sausage is made bit that then mm -hmm. pops out at the other end a number between zero and nine and um and we keep those updated as frequently as we can as you know for instance a launch company has a successful launch they they move and they may move up the scale of a point or two right um and so um and that's how i had that number at the ready of 162 launch companies that's how many are in our, our reality and, and i and i took a guess at over 150 so yeah uh, you're pretty spot I, on I, yeah <laughs> pretty spot on um but so we're hoping that that can be one tool for investors for customers for for any actors in this industry to be able to cut through a little bit of the noise um, obviously that's not every company in the industry. Obviously we haven't gone through all of our sectors yet. Obviously all of our investment sectors aren't going to be all the sectors of the, uh, of the space industry. Um, so, but hopefully that can be a starting point. So how not, not your system, but how do you look, how do you know a company is just sprinkled and how do you know if a company has got it? I have one in mind. I've used it before on a podcast, so I don't want to put it out there, but asking the project estimated costs by our team is 336 billion dollars, and they're asking for almost nothing as their first round yeah. of financing. And you think, yes, okay. I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, do, how do you how do you know which is a sprinkle and which is not? Uh, that's a great question. And it's a combination of kind of looking into all these factors that we talked about. And also keeping in mind that a lot of companies will start out with a zero or one reality rating because, because they're new. And it's, it's, so it's not so much as their reality rating a one right now is, is there, was their reality rating a one last year and the year before? and the year before. <laughs> you okay, know so, I mean? so you're using time as a variable, T0 to TX. So, right, because a brand new company, yeah, no, they don't have tech yet. No, they don't have financing yet. No, they don't have any of you know, so they, they can't they haven't gotten over yet. even the first hurdles. Right. And so, so a low number does not mean a bad company. It means an inexperienced company, an early, early stage company that might be just a PowerPoint company. But can they turn that PowerPoint into reality? You know, right? Because everybody starts as a PowerPoint company. But can you turn that PowerPoint into something real? That's, Are you telling me I have to create PowerPoints definition. now? Oh, 
so, um, so they do start out that way. What I'm finding, and I'm asking for your advice, I see a lot of individuals who've created a brand for themselves in the space industry that they go from project to project, they put their name on things, giving these companies a boost or an opportunity, they might make some money for consulting or whatever is their, their value proposition. Yet in the end, these are old thinkers with old constructs and all they're doing is sucking wind out of the sales of the space industry. I definitely know a few and have met a few of the folks you're talking about. Um, I, sure. I, we, I know you and I have not compared names, but you, <laughs> you do know that there, there's just, it, it's not even new space and old space. It, because those are industries and those are uh, approaches and there's size and scale. But there's just a lot of old thinking out there, re-sugarcoated as new, and yet they're not going to go anywhere I, either. And, and they scare me as an industry because for me and what we're doing at Project Moon Hut, we're trying to be on our end as and it's, we like it to be exciting. We're the age of infinite. It's a podcast, infinite possibilities, infinite resources. People love the hope. So we want to make sure we don't give them false hope in the process. So I'm trying to figure out how do I look at a company without you and get it? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's for us, one of the biggest indicators, and this is something that does require some industry knowledge, but also a little bit of Googling goes a long way. It's, it always comes down to the team, right? Technical problems can be solved. Business problems can be solved. If you have a founding team that have problems, that's very, very hard to solve, right? Um, and with the particular company that you were just mentioning, um, which I won't say the name of, if you do just a cursory Googling of some of the people on their team. Uh, you can tell that they're people you might not want to work with for various really? reasons. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a company, people who have a very puffy resume, but no results and have had lots and lots of jobs, very short turnover over their life <laughs> and have no, never produced results anywhere. Right. You know, and, and things like that just kind of stand out like a sore thumb when you just, when you just look at them critically. Right. Um, and so, you know, I would, I always say you start with the team, look at the team that will tell you just about everything you need to know. Also look for a well-rounded team. So many of these early stage team, it's, you know, two scientists and an engineer. Well, that's great for R and D for research and development, but who's going to run the business? <laughs> who's going to do the accounting? Who's going to talk to the customers? <laughs> who's going to talk to the investors, right? Um, and so, so looking for, for a group that has kind of thought through what type of team is actually needed to run a business, not just create a piece of technology. Um, I, you know, I think that that's really fundamental in, in the early stages because they, like I said, they may not have tech yet, may not have customers yet. And so it's really, it's about the team. It's, it's interesting that you went that way, but I didn't expect that. Uh, one of the patents that I have secured that I come up with years ago was decision-making based upon programmatic and algorithmic analysis. 
which, and we, we secured it within a period of six to eight months. It was unbelievable how quickly it went through because it was so unique. And we have the ability using experiential data, and it could be data of activities or performance or whatever uh, you put as variables, that those decisions get weighted and that weighting is tied to future decision-making. And so I hadn't thought about the interconnection of that patent with this part of the business. Interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah. It's the longest Hmm. patent we've ever written. It was like 60 pages long and it cost us a fortune because it's in this very crowded space of AI and the only way to get it through was to get the top AI lawyers that you could find. It was eight hundred dollars an hour, even oh, though wow. my even, <laughs> even though my partner is a former attorney and has over two hundred patents to his name. He's not a patent attorney, so what we did is we wrote what we could and then we handed it to the attorneys. And this was just like owning a boat would have been cheaper <laughs> because the money just flew out for them to write this complex patent, and we ended up getting it. So. Yeah, you, you've kind of brought me back to how maybe there is a mechanism that could be used to give a weighted average based upon historical references as to what these individuals are capable of or have delivered in the past. The The only challenge is you could have five failures and then one whopper. That's a win. Right. No, no. And, and that that absolutely does happen. It absolutely does. But um, you know, one of the things I always like to say about these space companies is, do they have any adult supervision in the room? You know, because <laughs> a, a, a lot of times they don't, you know, and so um, and so, you know, even even an entrepreneur who has failed four times is probably a better CEO than a rocket scientist. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. We've, we've got some of those. OK, right. And so and so it's like rocket scientists you are you are probably better suited to be chief technology officer of your company than ceo i promise if you enjoy being a rocket scientist you likely don't enjoy most of the tasks required to be a ceo right or a or a cto you should be building rockets yeah exactly exactly so um and and most of the founders we talk to, in fact, are very keen, keenly aware of that and very happy to have help finding a CEO if they need one, et cetera, right? Um, uh, and so, but, but yeah, it's about finding the teams who are well-rounded, who have thought these things through, who are more than just a technical team and, and um, who are people that you believe can actually make it, make it happen. So, so how do you put a number on it in your relativity scale? How do you with thousands of companies go through each one and say, okay, there are six players here. You do a LinkedIn look, you do a this look or that look. How do you know if they're going to build a space company? Well, you don't, especially if they're very early stage, right? That's why they start with the lower numbers. And a lot of times when we release, release our reality ratings, we'll hear from several of the companies that say, hey, yeah, I guess it's not on our website, but did you know that we just got this NASA contract and we just got this and we just got that? I go, oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, know, they don't want their ratings up. to be, they're giving the data because they don't want, to, right. they want their ratings right. to go up. Yeah, exactly. And so they'll go up a couple points. And then again, as they reach milestones or get NASA contracts or do press releases about big customer contracts and um, you know, you see a, a product 
get go to space and demonstrate uh, perfectly and you know and then their reality ratings will go up over time and so to me that's the most interesting part of the reality ratings is not what everybody's static rating is today but it's watching the ratings changing over time and people will go down too not just up um and so um so yeah so that that to me is it's the dynamic part of the reality ratings that's so fascinating okay the so let's uh, I, i'm assuming we're going to go on to the three forms of economic opportunity in the near three to five five to seven and seven plus sure. unless you've got something else you want to add let me double check my notes here make sure that i didn't miss anything on that one all right no um okay yes so let's start with economic art, um, opportunity in the near term, three to five years. So I told you earlier, I'd kind of talk about what are some of the entrepreneurial and investment opportunities. I'm sitting here saying, don't invest in law. And she say, well, Megan, what should I invest in? Right? First of all, this is not investment advice. I'm not a registered no, investment uh, yeah, advisor. <laughs> this, is, this, is okay. a, this is an educational opportunity for me and anybody else who listens to understand more about the space industry so that we can achieve the age of infinite. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So, um, so I mentioned earlier kind of as part of point four, the constellation craze, this idea of thinking of, of the constellations as a market in and of themselves. So, so what are the problems facing that market? And when I say problem in business speak, that's also an opportunity, right? So, so let's define constellation. Okay. A um, three or more satellites working together for a single purpose. Oh, really? Um, okay. I would never have defined it that way, but that's great. How would you define it? No, I, I, my mind went to constellation. So I'm thinking constellation, you know, da, 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 5,000 or I, even, even the GPS of having uh, the, a larger number, I would have not started with three, but I could understand I mean, if you some have some people a, would say three is a cluster. If you want to be, you know what I mean? The engineers all have their own terms for these things. No, but, that's, why I'm, that's why I asked yeah. you to define it because uh, I'm learning about different types of orbits and different types of capability, even though I've been in this for now forever, it seems like there's always something new to learn about. For example, yesterday always. I did Andrew McCarthy and he's talking about the, the one of the astronauts kicked the dirt and his boot became like an orange rusty color, Apollo 17, I think it was. And I said, the, the moon is full of color. And he said, oh, it's absolutely colored. And then he talked about how all these asteroids have hit and they've, and I said, it's more or less almost like dust on the top of the moon. It's covered all these colors that the moon is actually colorful underneath. Didn't know that. And you'd say, why don't you? <laughs> because it doesn't come up in conversation. Right? So when I, <laughs> when I think of these three or more, when you said that, I said, okay, so we could have a polar orbit satellite system of three different satellites that suffice in giving enough data so that there's continuous information being fed to whomever needs it. Right. And depending so on that's what kind a of data they're collecting and their, yeah. yeah, what kind of data they're collecting and the frequency and blah, 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 blah. Right. Yes. Yes. So that's why I said that. So three really changes my mind, uh, my mindset on what I thought. So three is a good number to 
hit me across the face and say, David, think smarter. Okay. <laughs> right. Cause there, and there's lots of constellations that are being planned right now that are 12 or 24 satellites, right? You also hear of 40,000 plus satellites for Starlink and, you know, but that not all constellations need to be that size, you know, but the so, hype, the hype is what pulled me so far higher. That's why when you said 100,000, and I'm thinking, okay, we got all these big 40,000 or 10,000, and you went right back to basics. It could be three, it could be 12, it could be a, a much different number. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so if you're interested, there's a really good website um, called newspace.im. I'm not affiliated or associated with it in any way. Um, uh, it's a gentleman named Eric Kulu, and he is tracking every planned and announced constellation. And it has great information on here, like how, you know, how many they've, how many are launched versus the total size of the planned network, a first estimated launch date, you know, how big they are, what they're doing. And so you can, you can take a look at that. And it's just a really, really fun website if you're interested in, what are all the constellations? What are they being launched for? What are you're they You're a space geek. Uh, you know, a really a fun a site. I, you space can look at the spreadsheet nerd. This right. You can look at the spreadsheet right and you can see all the different, <laughs> you know, spend your yeah. weekend, spend your nights, <laughs> I have spent, ignore I your children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I know all the good spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, he, but so he's put the, how long has he been in business? Do you know? I, I don't know how long this has been up. It's been up for at least a couple of years. I've been referencing it at least that okay. long. All right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so it's a real handy dandy little tool. If you want to know what all the constellations are. So I won't, I'll give you guys that tool. And so I don't have to go. No, no, no. I'm details. looking at it. It is massive. This is a lot of yeah. projects and yeah, this is a lot. So there's a lot going on. Okay. And yeah, and a lot of the ones down at the bottom, um, which have zero launched and question mark for total number of uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> constellations. I see that. Uh, yeah. So you have to. Oh, right. That. They're all canceled. Canceled, 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 canceled. Right. A lot of those are canceled. A lot. Of, and then there's a lot on here as well that are have not yet received funding. Yeah, a lot so, of question marks. Yeah, right, right. And so, so you know, keep all of that in mind. But this is this is, I think, a really good and interesting starting point if you're interested in, in the constellation craze. So, yep. so, um, okay. So, if you think about all of these constellations, and now you have your your list in front of you, um, <laughs> um. If you think about them as, as customers, as the market themselves, right? What are the products and services that they are going to need? Okay. So you think about, well, all the different widgets that go into a satellite. Sure. That's a, that's a great place to start. Can you make a better solar panel? Can you make a better battery? Can you make a better um, motherboard? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are definitely ways for incremental and even better than incremental progress in kind of all of those areas. But here's an interesting data point, me always going back to my numbers. Yeah. Um, and this comes from one of our portfolio companies, Skyloom, which put some information together 
around this. Um, that currently, well, there's only 3,000 or so satellites in orbit. Less than 1% of the data they collect makes it back to Earth. because of three important bottlenecks. Downlink, and then on-orbit storage and on-orbit processing. Okay? Yeah. So here's, here's an example I love to give. The disappearance of the Malaysian Airlines flight. We know for a fact there were multiple Earth observation satellites that took pictures of that Space, uh, of that aircraft along its entire flight path, wherever it ended up. Okay. Yeah. But because nobody pays for Earth observation data from open ocean, in order to maintain storage and processing capability on board the spacecraft, all open ocean imageries are images are immediately deleted if you're not necessarily like a ship tracking satellite right. constellation. If, if that's right? not your okay. business, correct. Right, right. And so what if those satellites had the ability either on the satellite themselves or via saying, you know, a, a server in space to, to just beam all of that information directly to a server that could store it, process it when, it was, when there was time, keep it for 48 hours, keep it for, for 10 days or, or, or two months until you know the data is not needed, until you've processed it and know there's nothing valuable on it, then dump it, right? So um, a, ser a server firm in space. Correct. Um, or finding better ways to manage storage and processing on board the spacecraft. And a lot of those problems come from, um, from energy availability. Right. And mm -hmm. the, you know, hot and cold cycles of, of the spacecraft. Right. And so solving those problems can could help uh, increase storage and, and processing capability on board. Um, and the as with most problems like this, the likely best solution is a combination of solutions. Right. Having your backup storage available, just like you back your everything up to the cloud right now. Right. Why wouldn't you do the same if you had the opportunity to do it cost-effectively in space? Because, Megan, you're not backing up to the cloud. You're backing above the clouds. So you'd actually be backing down to the clouds. Well, it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> you're back, backing to the, because to we the back Van Allen up belt, to the clouds. We're back, going down. Yeah, back up to the Van Allen belt. There you right. Go. We're going. Right. So we're backing <laughs> down to. So, yes. 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 <laughs> it was a joke. I just I just wanted you to know it was a joke. <laughs> so so you're saying is for opportunities, individuals could decide to be a part of the infrastructure that helps to create the products that go to that are built into the constellations or products that service the constellations. Right, and, and so yeah, this, you know, the, the um, processing and storage is the downlink. Um, so I mentioned Skyloom is the one who kind of did the research to come up with this data. They're, um, they're building some, some interesting technology for um, this coming switch from radio frequency to optical or, or laser communications that the industry is going to be undergoing in the next few years. Um, and Skyloom is building both inter-satellite laser comm links 
as well as a future kind of backbone layer to do um, laser comm uh, transmission and processing in space. And so, um, but there's lots of opportunities like that in, in helping kind of transition to this new infrastructure, um, you know, in, in the comms and downlink arenas. So to take what you're saying, and I'm gonna ask you a question and see how you go with this. Wouldn't it be advantageous to the space ecosystem or the space economy if in fact a company such as a laser company that is already producing lasers decides to start a space division where all they're doing is producing space lasers wouldn't it be advantageous to the ecosystem to say hey they're part of the ecosystem but they're, they're a space company because they're building lasers used in space there's, there's a lot of companies that exist like this right now where space mm -hmm. is, is one of their sectors, um, yeah. you know, with uh, aluminum companies and, you know, with all kinds yeah, of Yeah, all different right, types. Right, so right, my, my, right, mine right. is about language. I think the space industry is exclusive instead of inclusive. So I'm asking you when we talked about the space industry, if a company says we're building lasers, we have 25 people working on it, that's their sole job and it goes into space. In theory, according to Bryce or whatever company, the way we defined it, they're not a space company. No, they're not. But again, those, um, you know, that sector of their um, uh, of their company could be counted as part of the space sector, even though you wouldn't count the lasers that are being used on the ground, right? You would right. have to divide it up in some way um, to get the to get the calculus right, you know. Um, but, um, but, you know, that should definitely be considered a part of the space economy. And that's, and that's where in project moon, this is where I've had this challenge is that the industry kind of says it's got to be in space in order for it to be a space company. I said, yes, but if you build it, you build the satellite, but you don't ship it. You're not, it's, you don't own it. You've been contracted out to build the satellite. Well, then it's really not your satellite. You've been contracted out. So therefore you're not in the space industry. You're just a manufacturer. And I would argue, no, they're in the space ecosystem. They're part of the space sector. They're part of space industry. And if we inclusive of them, we start to see that the industry is pretty darn large. Right. And that's good. That's a good thing. That, that is a good thing. I, I agree with that. Um, although it might not be exactly the way to slice it up in order to get to the right numbers for <laughs> for a pure economic perspective right. but from 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 the way we speak about the industry perspective i completely agree yeah it's the numbers still would have to be defined for a spreadsheet expert like yourself you'd have to set the parameters and you could say they only manufacture on earth and they don't go to space so they're in space so they don't do or they utilize space or they don't but yet if a company relies on space to be an integral part of their services that they sell in order for them to function or to them to make money, then I would, in my opinion, I would start to include them in the space ecosystem. It's a lot more complicated, guaranteed. Yet it does change the dynamics because now that laser company is a space company. They have, they have a yeah. space unit and they become different. They become part of the family. And I think that's a positive thing for the industry. I would agree. Okay. That's where I was, that's where I was talking about much earlier on. 
That's where I, I kind of play this. We want the industry to grow, but we're telling people you're not part of the club because <laughs> you're not wearing the right sneakers. Yeah, but I'm inside with everybody, you know, but you're not wearing the right sneakers. You don't know the secret handshake. Yes, but, <laughs> come and on. it would be the space nerds that would need a, a secret handshake. Right? Right, it would be. So, so we have. I this, say that as one of the space nerds. No offense. Oh, I know that. I, I know it's it's uh, uh, it's a scary thing. It, it, sometimes, yeah, I won't go in how far into this. So the uh, so you have this example. This is a great example of someone who can see an opportunity in servicing that. How do you find or identify or what's if you were to advise somebody today, you're looking for something to do, you just got uh, COVID has destroyed your life and you're an engineer or you're smart or you've owned a business, you would say, go look. Go look at what the constellations are building. Go talk to the people building and operating the constellations and, uh, constellations and ask them what their pain points are. The thing that I give um, young entrepreneurs advice, the piece of advice I give most frequently, let's say, is talk to your customers. You would not believe how many brilliant product developers, right? Engineers, scientists, whatever the case may be, get all the way through to a prototype and have never spoken to a customer about what the customer actually wants or needs, <laughs> right? Oh. And it's like, you might think you know, what the, but you're not your customer. Go talk to them, ask them what their pain points are, ask them you know, what you can do to solve them. Have those conversations first before you, before you spend two years developing a product that you're not sure the dog foods are gonna want the dog, if the dogs are gonna want the dog food, as they say, you know? Uh, I taught new product and service development and innovation at NYU for 12 years. And that is, <laughs> that is such, but it's not just that. It's the, it happens the same way in creating a deck in the business development side. Did right. you try it with anybody? Well, no, I want to finish it first. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Just go tell, talk to somebody. No, no, I want it to look good. The graphics are still being worked on. Why are you making graphics? You know, pretty pictures. Just go talk to somebody. So I understand. <laughs> so you're talk to customers. So today, based upon your data, where would I go to, who would I talk to? Constellation is one, but what would be some of the other key areas that you feel there are opportunities in the marketplace? So um, I think there's opportunities in the marketplace to, let's say, uh, scale manufacturing, right? So there's kind of a, a few shops that are starting to come out on top as, as ones that, um, that can kind of build a spacecraft for you, soup, soup to nuts, right? Um, and whereas it used to be that if you wanted to start a space company, you had to build your own spacecraft mm -hmm. and you had to go figure out what's the best propulsion solution, what's the best satellite bus to buy, what's the best solar panels to buy. Now you can, you can walk into a company and say, hey, <laughs> I need a spacecraft that does this. And they'll go, great, we'll have six of them for you in 18 months. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think there's going to be there's going to be a lot of innovation around manufacturing, around streamlining manufacturing and, and reducing costs and increasing timelines. So that, um, that would be a company like Relativity Space. Is that what you come to mind? Or who do you come, what comes to mind when you think of building an aircraft? A built, not building, not building a, uh, a, a, spacecraft. A, a launcher, but like a, oh. like a satellite, a satellite. Oh, okay. Building a satellite. Yep. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. 
Um, and so, um, so, so that's, I think, going to be a really interesting innovation to watch. I think, as I mentioned earlier, this constellations as customers goes a long way. Everything from, you know, component parts that go into these new manufacturing lines that are being set up um, all the way through. Um, one of the things we talk, didn't really talk about was satellite servicing. Right. And so the ability to um, one of the things that I've that I've really enjoyed watching over this last two years is kind of the, the launch of the new um, OTVs, orbital transfer vehicles. Right. That that change the dynamics of your rideshare situation. And so, you know, being on a SpaceX rideshare is like taking the bus. You get dropped off or you get dropped off, bud. You don't get a choice, you know, um, but. Um, but if you have one of these orbital transfer vehicles, um, then you can get delivered to your final orbit um, without having to have as much onboard propulsion. And, and so it, it just really changes the dynamics. So that's kind of the first leg of satellite servicing. And then you have you know, the capability to refuel a satellite, the capability to change a satellite's orbit if it's been placed in the wrong orbit or it's fallen into the wrong orbit for some sort of technical reason. Uh, you have the ability to unfurl solar panels that didn't unfurl themselves appropriately. Um, you have kind of all of these services that can be provided by these satellite servicing robots. That's going to be very interesting to, to watch develop as well. Um, and, um, you know, so, so I think there's a lot of parts to that kind of low earth orbit satellite supply chain that you can start looking at that from, from soup to nuts and find opportunity along every step of the way. Okay. And anything else in the three to five? Um, that's, that's the big focus for, for me for the three to five. Okay. Five to seven. All right. So this is where we get to talk about a little bit more of the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fun stuff. Okay. So, um, so this is where I like to talk about the in-space supply chain. So we just talked about the satellite supply chain. That's the majority of that supply chain is based here on Earth, right? And then you launch your sat the satellite and it does its work on orbit. But it was designed, built, manufactured, and launched, you know, all here on Earth. And so an in-space supply chain gets more into this kind of what we were talking about, satellite servicing. Right, so a satellite servicing spacecraft is an expensive robotic spacecraft to build. And you're not gonna, you know, it's not really a sustainable business model if you only get one use out of that servicing spacecraft. And so in order for that satellite servicing spacecraft to have multiple uses and for it to be able to provide fuel to its satellite customers, there need to be fuel depots in space, going back to Dan Faber and Orbit Lab. Now, fuel depots in space are, to me, one of the most important first nodes in a future all-in-space supply chain. So we'll talk a little bit about asteroid and moon mining in the next one, in the seven to plus, you know, seven plus years. But in order for those things to make sense, for the business case to close, for those things to be economically viable, you have to start the development now, and especially over the next five to seven years, of an in-space supply chain. So 
imagine that asteroid miner, the first thing it brings back from an asteroid is water. There's a lot of reasons for that. Water is hydrogen and oxygen, hydrogen and oxygen make rocket fuel. It's also really important if you wanna breathe or drink or anything like that, right? And so, so where's that water gonna go? Who is it gonna be sold to? There needs to be a functioning and robust in-space supply chain for those materials to be sold into. And so in the next five to seven years, you're gonna see the development of, of the early stages of this supply chain where eventually raw materials such as water can be launched into space. They can be processed into fuels, oxygen for breathing, water for drinking at a processing plant in space. That processing plant, then one of its customers are commercial space stations who need water and oxygen and fuel, but they're also refueling satellites with hydrogen peroxide um, or some other you know, de, uh, fuel derived of water. And so um, then once asteroid mining comes online, there's a place for it to, you know, the, that asteroid miner to come and deposit its dirty water from the asteroid into a ready and waiting fuel, propel, you know, propellant depot, um, propellant processing and depot and sales, right? All already functioning and on orbit. Another really important part of this in-space supply chain is in-space manufacturing. Um, and so, you know, again, these raw materials from space need a robust manufacturing pipeline to be sold into. And so this is everything from kind of the most famous example you hear about a lot, which is Z-Plan optical fiber, um, all the way through 3D printing of, of human organs um, and pharmaceuticals. And, and then, you know, uh, silicon wafers for, for integrated circuits, for computer chips. Um, the, the environment of space, natural vacuum, natural near um, absolute zero temperatures, um, the, you know, low gravity, all of these things can be very beneficial for certain manufacturing processes. And so right now, even though raw materials are being launched from Earth, um, you know, those businesses can start to really scale once they have a source of, of in-space, you know, supply chain. But in the meantime, um, those businesses can be profitable and, and, um, and in fact, create quite a bit of revenue, um, even still having to launch their raw materials from Earth. The, I'm going to add something and just <clears throat> for someone who might be listening later is that hydrogen peroxide for most is not a common um, chemical or a, uh, people don't know the formulaic version of it. So it's H2O2. And the reason I'm saying that is that there's a hot, if you have water within hydrogen and oxygen, you can now create the H2O2. And that might not be something that someone would understand without knowing that it's, you're still using the same elements to be able to create that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's hydrogen peroxide. I, I never thought about what hydrogen peroxide was made out of. And now that I'm thinking about it, my background is organic chemistry, physics, calculus, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I'm saying, what is in hydrogen peroxide? Is there anything that's necessary that would make it more challenging to create? And it's not because you've got everything you need. Correct. So, so you're uh, on the fuels, on the 
the supply chain side, you're supplying basic raw materials to space, then you're solving the challenges of manufacturing or converting what's ever been brought to space into something else through some type of robotic technology mm -hmm. that enables that to be reconverted and brought back down to earth or used in space. Correct. Okay. And any other variants within, I hate to use the word variants given what that means today uh, in, because of COVID is five, yeah. <laughs> that's why I, we, I use variant and I went, oh God, I'm going in a different direction. Five to seven years, do you see, you just talked about pharma, you said silicon wafers, you had 3D human organs, you had Z-band, what else might be in that category? As far as manufacturing in space, yeah. I don't know, man. I heard, um, I, I, we'll, we'll be making an announcement here in the next couple of weeks. I can't quite talk about it yet, but we have a, a deal ongoing right now with an in-space manufacturing company. And um, I remember on, on a call with, with one of the founders listening to him get so excited. He's like, you know, he's going through all the kind of stuff and the, the business side of it and, and, you know, all the very practical stuff. And then, and then we asked him, we said, so based on what you're telling us about this and, and how you're combining these two elements in a unique way, you know, what other elements could you combine? And man, did you see his eyes lit up? He, and he got the biggest smile on his face. He's like, he's like, that's the thing, man. We can start crashing all sorts of stuff together. We don't know what's gonna work. We right. don't know what we're gonna create. Unobtainium, maybe, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's absolutely, the, the combination of microgravity and zero atmosphere, uh, as well as the the temperature, are very much different conditions that we have on Earth. Exactly. So the, and so we have no idea what's possible. So that's you really the, think on obtainium we can have that? Because I've been working <laughs> on that in my garage, and I now I, I I knew I was doing something wrong. Right, right. I think. But don't you need you, uh, you need a superhero to come in and save the day though? So <laughs> that's you know somebody from another planet. Okay, so anything else within then the five to seven? Uh, no, that's my that's my big pitch for the five okay, to seven. Okay, so we'll go to our seven plus. All right, so this is where we get into asteroid mining, moon mining, um, which I'll 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 spend as much or as little time as you want on as. As you you know, I worked at Deep Space Industries, so I can <laughs> I have a tendency to to go on a little too long. So try to keep it short. <laughs> That's okay. I have I stopped um, you yet? On it? Have I told you to stop anywhere? No. Okay. All right. So um, so asteroid and moon mining, um, I think, are both very re realistic in kind of this seven to ten year time frame. This is going to have everything to do with kind of when the first private dollars, significant private dollars, go into a mission of this sort. And then it'll be five, seven, 10 years out, mm -hmm. um, depending on the specifics of the business plan. Um, and so this is the key to making that in space supply chain work that we were just talking about um, in the five to seven year time frame. Uh, this is what drastically brings down the cost of operating in space. And this is what makes long-term permanent human habitation possible. 
Now, I, I, you asked me what, if I can cut you off at any time. Mm-hmm. What's the name of our foundation? Moon Hut. <laughs> right. So where are we positioned in terms of the Earth economy, moon and earth economy? And what does this, what might we need to make it happen? That's why I said, I'm not going to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So um, as you probably know, this is something that we refer to a lot in the industry as in-situ, re- in-situ resource utilization, or basically living off the land, right? Using the resources of where you are um, as much as possible, relying on resupply from earth as little as possible um, to really, again, get to this idea of sustainability, right? And so, um, so in this kind of seven plus year time frame, to me, the, the real key is getting asteroid and moon mining um, online working economically viable, because then that opens the door for the ability to build large structures in space when you have the ability to 3D print those large structures and you have a supply of raw materials with which to print them. Um, now you can build anything you want. Now you can build a habitat as, as big as you need to. Um, now you can build return rockets on the moon. So you don't have to bring your return rocket with you, right? Um, or, or, you know, kind of any of those, those, being able to source water on the moon, again, for breathing, for drinking, um, but also as fuel to survive the lunar night. And so, um, you know, that in situ resource utilization is so important because one, it's then the basis of all of this other economic activity, but two, in and of itself has the potential to uh, be a huge value creation opportunity. And so, so that's, that's my first key to the, the longer time frame. And then the next topic I wanted to talk to you about there, and, and I'll, I'll kind of weave these together a little bit, and then, uh, and then we can go back and, and see if you have any questions. But when Starship comes online, now I expect tar- Starship to come online in less than seven years. Starship will c- probably come online with the reliability to take humans to and from space in the five to seven year time bracket. And, and okay. s- Starship is SpaceX's, um, define it f- so that it's on record when you say SpaceX Starship. Is, because, uh, it, yeah, it's just not, girl, not right? someone who listens to this podcast the first time ever is not going to know what Starship is if they're, they've not been the space industry and they come in at number 41 of our podcasts. That's why I yeah. say <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no problem. So, Starship is the the big new um, the big new rocket that SpaceX is currently building that they're testing uh, down in Boca Chica. Seems like about once a month at this rate, where or so we're getting to see a test flight of uh, of the Starship prototype. Um, and and the idea is that Starship will be able to take a hundred tons to orbit. Um, it will be able to take a hundred people to orbit at a time. And that's the capacity that I think is is really interesting to talk about, okay? So right now, a Dragon capsule on top of Falcon can take, what, what is it, six people is the max yeah. you can put in, in there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so imagine, 
imagine how different low Earth orbit would look if if SpaceX had the capability to take a hundred people at a time back and forth to Leo on a reusable spaceship that could fly dozens or hundreds of times a year. Okay. So when we and look by at the this, way, it's it's seven. I kept I'm saying to myself, the space seven. shuttle, the space shuttle had seven. I believe this has seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're probably right. Six wasn't sitting well with me, but I couldn't. No, it wasn't sitting well with me. And I'm saying to myself, I know I made an analogy before because I think there were three on one deck in the space shuttle and four on the other. And then I used that same analogy when I was thinking about the dragon. And I'm I'm probably completely wrong, but maybe. Okay. Yes. So let's yeah. seven people. And it has, depends on the crew versus cargo configuration and all yeah. that, right? Yeah. Okay. So currently you can do seven at a time. What happens when you can do a hundred at a time? Um, oh, and I'm how... going to stop. I just looked it up for us. The, though the space shuttle had the capacity of flying as many as eight people, uh, uh-huh. they had the capacity to do eight, but it depended on uh, on conditions the way they had done it. So I don't think they did. I think they typically did seven, but I'm looking at it very quickly just so we can have it here and, and we don't get any space nerd saying, David, what is wrong <laughs> with you? Don't you know this? Because I, I watch people attack people in the space industry. No, it's not oh, know, 47 it's so kilograms. It's 49. How could you have made that mistake in your lifetime? Get off planet Earth. You are no longer valuable. And that happens a lot. So okay. Yes, it does. <laughs> okay, so we've got seven. Sorry. Go ahead. So we did find out Dragon was seven? Yep. Okay. Um, so... Um, so how different does the world look when you're taking a hundred Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to caveat this. It says, in May 2014, Musk unveiled the seven-seat crew dragon. Didn't this guy in Japan who's got the seat, who's doing this thing to the moon? Well, that's a different rocket, but that's supposed to be eight, I think. Okay. Not that it's important, but it is important because I don't want people to hit this podcast and say we screwed up and everything else was fantastic. And then we have one thing wrong. <laughs> right, okay. right. So exactly. again, I'm, I apologize for keep on stopping you, but I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm sweating right now. <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> I'll never be loved. <laughs> All right. Um, not, not an unreasonable concern in this industry. I know where yeah. you're coming from. <laughs> um, all right. So, so when we start looking at that plus seven year time frame, um, you know, I, I like to say, look, when when Starship comes online, wh- where are all these people going to go? Right? There's no Disney World in space. There's there, there's no casinos. There's no sports arenas. What are what are a hundred people at a time going to do? Where are they going to go? Um, and so I think that as people start planning now for businesses that will be in high demand five, seven, 10 years from now, start thinking about the real estate of space. Start thinking about the coming housing shortage in space. If uh, we have robust in space manufacturing facilities, um, you know, when you're talking about manufacturing of a well-defined product, 
almost all of that can be automated. But when you're talking about R&D, product development, all that initial stuff, you really do need humans in the loop. And so you're going to have lots of people working and living in space, developing these new products, playing with these new Atoms, tiny atom smashers, as that one entrepreneur I mentioned was talking about, like, smash all kinds of things together, see what happens. Um, <laughs> um, so where, where are all those people going to work and play? Uh, where are their families going to live? Are their families going to move up, up there with them? Are there going to be elementary schools in space? Right. And so you start to think of kind of a world of possibilities when you start thinking of hundreds of people at a time. This is what my business partner, Rick Tumlinson, likes to call a Mayflower class, right? This is, this is something that could really change the way people move and think about space. And so in that seven plus year time frame, the, you know, the um, housing shortage, I think is, is a really important conversation to have. And, and, and the work and play aspects of human life as well. Um, people aren't going to just go up there and, and, you know, do their job and then go sleep in their little, you know, strapped in bunk and then go do their job. Like they want to be able to work, but they also want to be able to play. They want to be able to have their families with them. They want to be able to, uh, you know, to eat locally grown vegetables that were picked this morning. Um, so how do we, how do we grow vegetables in space? Right. Um, and so there's a lot of questions to start asking now if you want to look at that, solving that housing shortage of seven plus years from now. And then, um, and then the last thing I'll leave you with on, on, this, on this final seven plus years point is, is that if you're really interested in trying to think about how to solve some of these longer term problems, start thinking about completely new business models, completely new governance models and completely new monetary systems. Um, space is a place where all of these things can be tried in a way that they haven't been since kind of, um, since the dawning of the new world, quote unquote, um, as, as rough as it was and as much as don't agree with a lot of the, the principles of colonization, um, that was kind of the last time that we were able to develop new, um, new political systems, new monetary systems, right? What are those new systems going to look like off world? This is an opportunity for us to reinvent everything. Um, and to me, that's where we get to this kind of age of the infinite and unlimited possibilities. Cool. And, and full circle, uh, I met Rick at Pioneering National Space Summit, which mm -hmm. uh, you and I shared. Then he introduced me to David Johnston, who's on our team, and we're building uh, a DAO together, which, and his podcast that he did was about new governance and governance in space. Yes. David is, of course, a very good friend and, and a partner in the funds. And uh, yeah, just and, absolutely. This is one of the things like when he and I go out to lunch or dinner, we'll just go off for an hour. <laughs> you well, know, and and that's where fun. he, yeah, he's been with us for six months, seven months, and we meet every week. 
and we're working on how do we make these changes for the future. So yeah, the, I, li- I like where you, you brought it in terms of these new infinite opportunities and infinite resources, which changes our future. And the, Absolutely if- does. And that's the, you know, one of the things I like to say is that space is the only economic sector that exists that has the actual potential for unlimited growth, unlimited value creation. Everything else, every other sector on earth is by definition finite. It is limited in its resources. It is limited in the amounts of product that it can produce. There's limited in the amount of oil you can pull out of the ground. There's a limited amount of rare earth metals to make all of these important computer, computer parts, right? Everything else is, you know, the internet is limited by bandwidth. Yeah. Everything else is, internet, is limited. Space is the only economic sector with truly unlimited growth potential. And, and the, the infinite word is much more powerful than abundance because the, uh, to me, in order to have the abundance, you have to have scarcity. There's a yin and yang, but you have this infinite possibility and it's tough to get your mind around the fact that on the moon for every 100 asteroids that have hit, three of them have more platinum in them than we've used in the history of mankind each. And there have been millions. So there's this infinite possibility for hope and, and, and a new age. So it's a, it can be for Earth an exciting time. And the, the positives of what you spoke about also come back to Earth in the form of new materials, in the form of biopharmaceutical, uh, new pharma, in the form of new constructs that allow us to live in a different way than we've had for all 7.5 or by that time, uh, eight or nine billion, eight and a half billion, and for all 50 million species on this planet. Exactly. There's, you know, and, and that's the thing too, is that once you know, obviously you got to start small and, and start with, uh, start with close to home and what we know, but, but the better we get at this, the further out we get, um, the, the more and more, um, you know, we'll be able to not only expand as a species, but expand our economic sphere as well. And, and, you know, the one comes, you can't have the one without the other, right? Uh, people need to eat, <laughs> people need places to live. And so as that economic sphere increases so does humanity's sphere of influence and knowledge and 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 interest and access and resources and all the rest and that's the what you just described as the mirth economic system and the mirth economy and we at project moon hut believe that the next iteration is that there will be a mirth ecosystem and economy that there will be on the moon on earth and between the moon and earth. And there will be trade routes and, and activity that happens constantly between them and within each other to create this new infinite possibility. And I like the term mirth. Our, us old timers in the industry refer to it as the very boring, drying cis lunar economy. <laughs> it's terrible. A nine-year-old nine has to learn that. I mean, a challenge. But mirth is a simple word. If people, the first time I pre- delivered this, the first presentation I gave was the National Space Society, and that's uh, was where at the end of the event there were about 40, 50 people, 
eight people in their summary of the event said and used mirth in a sentence. Oh, awesome. I and those are, those are real hard. Those are real core hard. Those are hardcore space people. Yes. So, well, this was fantastic. I never know where someone's going to take me. I never know what the experience is going to be. As you now know, there is, I don't hear anything in advance. I don't see the outline in advance and we go through it one by one and, and I'm learning from you. So I appreciate Megan very much. You're taking the time to construct this for us, for me, and for taking the time to answer all these ancillary questions that I know were not on your list, but they help <laughs> Absolutely. us. To, but that's the fun of it. I mean, that, it's a real conversation is that I'm really trying to learn to help us to be able to, in Project Moon Hut, to do a better job. And so your help is very much appreciated. So thank you. It was an absolute pleasure being here, David. It was a lot of fun. So I do want to thank all of you out there for taking the time to listen in today. And I do hope that you learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Remember, we're part of the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through the accelerated development of the Earth and space-based ecosystem, which we've been talking about today, and then to use the endeavors, the paradigm shifting, those innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. And Megan, what's the single best way to connect with you? Best way is to go to spacefund.com. Uh, spelled exactly like it sounds, where a fund, an investment fund, um, investing in space. And there's a contact form on the website if you want to get in touch. And you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, but spacefund.com, you said single. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, I also, I would like to connect with anybody who's listening in. But I will make a short announcement that we took down the old website, even though it had a lot of current information. It was old. I did it in 2015 in a weekend before I was allowed to speak in Latvia. They required me us to have a website, so we tossed one up. We took it down, and right now up on projectmoonhut.org, there is a placeholder, but it's starting to form. We're creating our new website. It shouldn't be done shortly. And you can also sign up to keep in touch. So this will be part of the beta and all the others. We're not going to be spamming you, hitting you, selling any of that. It's just so that you, if you want to be close to us and see a little bit of our imagery, you can go there. You can connect with me, David, at david at projectmoonhut.org. You can connect to us at at uh, Project Moon Hut on Twitter, also at Goldsmith. And then LinkedIn and Facebook, we have Project Moon Hut Foundation on both of those. So you're avail we're available there. And that's it. I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.